this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. Adoma spied Anochi, her future husband, at her very first Egwonwa outing in Anyoma Uku. A few months after her 14th birthday, her little brothers and sisters had been put to bed. They trailed her everywhere she went when they were awake. The moon was almost dazzling in its brilliance as she skipped from her father's compound of mud-walled homes to the community square to meet her best friend, Mboli. Mboli was half a year older and had been going to Egwonwa for over three months, but Adoma was not allowed to join the monthly moonlit gathering of young people because she was not yet of age. Her period hadn't made an appearance until now. She had prayed daily for it to arrive, and when it finally did, she ran overjoyed to find Mboli. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Omalola Ijeoma Ogunyemi. Born and raised in Ibadan, Nigeria, Omalola, a professor of social medicine who teaches and conducts research on using biomedical informatics to reduce health disparities, Lola infuses the stories in her collection with memories, family history, and stories she remembered from her childhood. The best friends who meet in a Nigerian boarding school become close, close friends and continue to love and support each other as the years pass. Each of them face struggles and pain. Each comes to term with difficult relationships, where and how to live, and their sisterhood endures wherever they are in the world. Hi, Lola. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Galit. It's a pleasure to be here. You're a very busy person who teaches and does research at the university level. How did you come to also write a book of stories? 
It really has to do with my childhood. I always loved reading books. And my mom uh, was a literature professor at the University of Ibadan in Nigeria. She taught African and African-American literature. So we had all these really intriguing books all over our house. And I kind of got tired. I was a little precocious. I got tired of reading kids' books. And I would sneak the uh, books she was teaching. You know, I would sneak James Baldwin, Alice Walker, uh, Toni Morris, and I would sneak all those books and read them. And I, I can't say that I understood everything I was reading because I, I was I was a kid, but it just got me fascinated with um, reading. And so I have a younger brother and both of us loved reading and we decided one day to write a novel. I was eight and he was seven. And so we had, you know, a novel with like car chases and explosions for him and tea parties for me. But in the end, we couldn't, we couldn't make it work. <laughs> we Aww. tore it up. Those car <laughs> so that was my first, <laughs> that was my first foray into writing a novel when I was eight. It could have been a bestseller. <laughs> Can you explain the Egwu Onwa outing where Adaoma sees her husband to be? Yes. So uh, back in the old days, back in my grandmother's time, um, once a month, young people would gather unchaperoned, unsupervised, and, you know, they would, they would dance, they would play games. It was, you know, a simpler time. And so they would meet every month. And it was basically people who'd come of age. So the girls had to have already started their um, periods to be able to join that outing. So it was a gathering of young people in, in, in a way is sort of like a matchmaking thing, if you think about it, but that mm. that's what that was. And it would happen every month when the moon was out. Who are the Anyoma Uku people uh, that you speak of in the story and where do they come from? So they're Igbo people, they're, or Igbo, they're Western Igbo people. So they're Igbo people in Nigeria, west of the river Niger. So most Igbo people are east of the river Niger. And um, the history or the, the, the folk tales that we hear are that uh, a prince moved from the east and was fleeing persecution or something and crossed the river Niger with uh, a pot or something. And where, where it fell, he started a uh, uh, number of towns. So Anyomoku is actually fictional. It means a beautiful land, but it's meant to represent the uh, Western Igbo people. So places like Asaba, Ogwashuku, uh, there's, there's a lot of towns that are Igbo speaking in that part of Nigeria. Ah, so you invented. Yeah, this so it's not, a, it's not an actual place, okay, but it okay. is modeled on real places. <laughs> wow, that was so interesting. So Adoma makes this difficult decision in the one of the early stories to bring another wife into her house because she's barren. This takes place since 1927. Are any of these customs still in place? Um, so part of what the story is showing is basically that everything changed with the introduction of Christianity with with uh, colonial contact. And so it's just it was there were different ways for a woman to address uh, infertility. And one of them was 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 that. And another was her later dis decision. Um, I don't know if we'll talk about that. Uh, in a, in a bit, but I don't want to give any spoilers if you if you right. if you weren't going to bring no, that up. No, let's not talk about it. Okay, so so that was that was one. I mean, she loved her husband, 
and she wanted him to have a family. So it was a step or a sacrifice that she thought she could make. And she tried to pick someone she thought would fit in, you know, with them and there wouldn't be any issues, but it didn't work out that way. <laughs> wow. It was, it was a powerful story. And I just want to point out for everybody listening, this is, these are interconnected stories. So the first story takes place in 19, uh, the first few take place in the 1920s, but now we're skipping to 1986 and there is a connection. It doesn't become clear automatically. But we're in 1986, and the four girlfriends, Aisha, Nonso, Sholape, and Remy, are very upset about the boarding school principal's rules. Can, can you please say more about boarding schools in Nigeria and why the girls were there? And did you go to a boarding school? So yes, I did go to a boarding school. And while the boarding school in the story is fictional, some of the things that happened with hazing and so on were very real for many Nigerians who went to boarding school. But, you know, that Nigeria was colonized by the British and they love boarding schools. And so that's one of the things that we ended up adopting. But the kind of boarding school that they went to um, was a federal boarding school. That is, it was funded by the federal government and subsidized to... Um, the, the kids paid very little tuition. But the idea behind the boarding schools was a good one. They were conceived as unity schools. So in the aftermath of the civil war in Nigeria, a lot of people were thinking about how to bring people together. How do you get someone from one part of the country to see that someone from another part of the country is just like them, fully human with dreams and aspirations and desires? And one idea was to have, you know, younger, you know, young children go to boarding school together. So it was sort of an experiment in a way. So I went to a boarding school, much like the one in the book, where there were girls from all parts of Nigeria. And it didn't matter. Um, so you had people from different ethnic backgrounds. So you also had people from different socioeconomic backgrounds. You had kids of millionaires with kids of, you know, street sweepers all together, as long as you could pass a national common entrance exam. And I know, of course, passing the exam is more likely if you have, if you're from a middle-class background, but there were people from all kinds of backgrounds who were able to pass and who did get in. And so it was just a way to see the, the entire um, spectrum of humanity in Nigeria and you know, you, you ended up, because you lived with these girls for years, they ended up being like your sisters, even though you're not uh, blood relatives. And I wanted that to come through in the story. It does. It does. Um, Aisha, who's one of my favorites, you, you really made each of the girls distinct of the friends. Aisha's mom is of Cherokee ancestry, her parents met in the US. Mm -hmm. So she does this really interesting thing of speaking to each of her parents in their own accent, which is, <laughs> uh, where did you come up with that? And can you so, say more so about that's that? Actually, that was actually based on, I, I had um, an African-American classmate in at, at my school in Nigeria. And we used to tease her because when her mom would come, when, when she would speak to her mom, she would switch accents and speak to her in an American accent. And then when she would speak to the rest of us, she would switch to a Nigerian accent. She, Her family moved to Nigeria when she was two or three years old. And so 
Um, she's not the full inspiration for Aisha because Aisha has an African-American mother and a, and a Nigerian father. And my, my, my friend is African-American, but that kind of struck me. And it, it, I, I thought that would be a nice touch to put in, in the story because it was something that I had seen and right. was a source of amusement for a lot of us. It fills out her character. In another story, and um, Shegun, who is 18 and at a college in the States on a full scholarship, he remembers something his father used to say. He, his father used to say, Nigeria is hard on the body. America is hard on the mind. Later, we find out that Shagun marries one of the one of the girls from the boarding school. Um, but can you talk more about Shagun's father's comment? So it's just the notion that you know, as an immigrant, you you you're leaving your country because it's hard to do certain things. Nigeria is hard on the body. It's hard to get the money that you need to live. But when you move to the U.S., first there's the dislocation of being an immigrant, not fitting in in that way. And then you're contending with racism, which is something that these characters would never have to deal with in Nigeria. So we have other isms. We have, you know, ethnic rivalries, but it's not quite the same as um, uh, sort of race-based discrimination based on how you look. And that's what Shegun's father means by that. So um, he's trying to give his son advice on how to make it in this new society because things are gonna be different from, the challenges he's going to face are gonna be different from the challenges he would face in Nigeria. Yeah, I've been thinking about that line since I read the book. Um, So now we have Nanso traveling, 1983. She's traveling with her mother and it connects with the first story in the book because they're heading to the uncle who was introduced in the first chapter. Right. But what really struck me is the story of Nanso in the water. Can what's going on there? So Nanso takes her first trip. Her mother is a history professor, and she sort of resists. <laughs> she resists her mom's attempts to sort of imbue her with a sense of the history and the purpose and you know. Um, beauty of many different African countries because she, like other people her age, just wants to, you know, the, the 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 fad at the time was to go to London and to go to Madame Tussauds and do all those things. And that's what kids her age wanted to do. And her mom is like, no, I want to show you, I want to show you the continent. And so her mother takes her on a trip to Ghana where there are two slave forts and um, they go to one in particular, Elmina, which uh, was a Dutch castle and um, where a lot of enslaved people were, were, were processed and taken to the new world. Most of the people taken from Elmina, I think ended up in Brazil actually. And she's confronting this history for the first time. It, 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 com- it, it becomes real to her and it's hard for her to process. And she's, she, she, it's hard for her to handle. And so she conjures up something and someone that she thinks she can save, but the past is the past and she can't do that. And so the story is sort of about that. Ah. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, 
Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Then there's a beautiful story. I won't uh, give any spoilers about it, but when Shalope's mother opens a food stand and all of the friends come to celebrate, it's it's a just a beautiful story about friendship and memory. Can you tell us a little more about it? So I wanted to basically highlight the fact that the the friendship between the girls was almost more than a friendship. It was more of a sisterhood, even though they weren't blood relatives. And um, one of the choices I made in the book is that none of them have biological sisters. So they, they, some of them have siblings, it's mostly, but they mostly have brothers. And so in a way they are each other's sisters. And so when Chalakme is gone, they want to make sure that they honor her memory. And that includes reaching out to her mother, making sure she's okay, and doing that over the course of a lifetime. And so I I, I wanted to highlight that. Um, I, I, and, I just, it was so moving, so moving. Um, these girls are wonderful, I hope. I was wondering, did you have a tight gang of girlfriends like this? Yes. Sisterhood, okay. <laughs> that makes it more clear. So um, this is a dynamite story when Aisha is vid- visiting Krakow and tells a random American about the protest when she was a child in a in boarding school about that, that one of the triggers of all of their lives. Can you address how important that incident was without giving away anything? The incident in boarding school or the meeting in Krakow? Either one. Okay. So th- there were two things. So um, there's a, a, a pivotal moment in the lives of the girls that occurs when there's an uprising in a boarding school and it basically changes the trajectory of their lives. And Aisha sort of takes it the hardest of the three that uh, continue. And she has an almost, her reaction to it is a, a little bit maladjusted, I'll say. I'll just put it that way. But she wants to honor the, the memory of her friend. And she's trying to do the things that she thinks her friend would do. And she happens to go to uh, Krakow, Poland for another friend's wedding. And one of the things that can happen when you travel overseas, especially when you travel to a place, if you're if you speak mostly English and that's not the predominant language where you're going, and you don't speak the language, is people tend to gravitate towards other people, even strangers who speak the language that they're used to and open up in a way that they might not if they met the same person in the US. So... Aisha meets a character called Todd in Poland that, you know, she'd passed him on the street in Boston or New York. She probably wouldn't give him the time of day, but they're both both English speaking in a place where she doesn't feel completely 100% comfortable. And so she opens up and shares uh, part of her story with him. And um, 
well, we find out a little bit more about what he's about later. But in, in that moment, she's being vulnerable, but she's vulnerable because of the circumstance of being in a, a different country where most people uh, don't speak English and sort of making a new friend who, who does. Yeah. Nanso is a high-achieving, unhappy 35-year-old. At some point in the story, she has a Harvard MBA, works for an investment bank, earning a ton, but she's so unhappy. So she moves to Nigeria, and then a few stories later, she's unhappy again and decides to move back again. Um, what What's up with her? So it's not just about Nanso in that in 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 that instance. I wanted to capture a phenomenon that I've noticed um, among some of my friends uh, who are Nigerian. So this notion of not really fitting in in any place, and it's it's a little wow. it's a little sad, mm-hmm. but you know. So you come to the U.S. and you're dealing with issues that, of course, so there's life is much easier in many ways. Uh, things work in ways that they might not work in Nigeria. But then you realize, oh, you miss the sights and sounds and smells, the food. There's uh, parts of the culture that are more forgiving, for example, for working mothers. Um, mm. And so I've, I've had friends who are like, ah, oh, OK, I think I want to go back home. And then they move back with their families. They want their children to be exposed to Nigerian culture and the good parts of life in Nigeria. But then they start getting frustrated again with the you know bureaucracy and getting things done. And they're like, oh, this is why I left in the first place. And then they come back to the U.S. I wanted to, because most of the immigrant stories I read are about essentially people fleeing persecution or something along those lines or uh, fleeing um, a, a really bad economic situation. And so when they get to the U.S., it, it's, you know, they're not looking back. They're they're mm-hmm. Americans. They're charting a way forward. And a lot of Nigerians who come to the U.S. are middle class in Nigeria. And to be able to afford a plane ticket to come to the U.S., um, you're, you're kind of a little better off. Uh, at the time I came, a lot of Nigerians weren't winning the green card lottery. That 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 has changed, and so most of the Nigerians who were who were coming to the U.S. had the means to come here, mm-hmm. and so it's like they have a sense of the fact that they can go back, and then they're caught like always with this grass is greener mentality where. You're here and you're looking longingly at the things that you miss from over there. And then you go back and you're looking longingly at the things that you miss from the U.S. And I wanted to capture capture that in a way. And that is, yeah, you did. You really did. I wish well, there was Nanso, time. Oh, I just wanted to say a little mm-hmm. more about Nanso. With Nanso, there's another thing that's going on with her in that story. It's echoing Adama's story, but she handles the same situation differently. So that that's all I'll say about that. Oh, I got to think about that. You're right. I never thought of it before. Okay. So I, I was saying, um, I wish we had time to talk about everything. I have so many more questions, but... Um, I just want to let's focus on the final story, which is so different from everything else. Set in the right. future, 2050. It is not a pretty picture. Mm-hmm. What's going on? So the the book, I should say, took 15 years to write. Uh, 
I'm an informatician, so I teach, I do research, and I would write a story at a time, share with family and friends. And eventually my brother was like, you know, your stuff is pretty good. You should submit to some of these competitions and so on. And um, he badgered me and I finally submitted to a pen um, competition in South Africa. And I was a finalist and I was like, okay, I got to take this more seriously. But what would happen is, you know, I would write a little bit at a time. And so I wrote different stories at different stages of my life. So there's stories in the collection that were written in like 2005, 2006. And there's stories that were written in 2020 or 2018. The last story was written in 2018. And I was really looking at what was going on in the U.S. at the time feeling really frightened about being an immigrant for the first time, like really frightened, like thinking about, should I think about going back to Nigeria? And I brought that up with my husband. My husband is not Nigerian. He's American. He's from Chicago. And he's like, we're not, no, we're, we, we, we stay here. But that story basically was me looking at, well, what if, you know, if things go the worst possible way they can, where, where where might we end up? It also is a bookend to the first story. Because if you put yourself in Adama's shoes, she, what she was living was a dystopian reality. That's so true. in those days, she was able to... So um, a woman could marry a woman if they had enough money to pay a bride price. In other words... Most people weren't marrying for love. And if you could afford to take care of a family, you could pay a bride price, you could marry. And that was one way for a woman who was wealthy and infertile to be able to have a family of her own. Because whatever children her wife had, because she paid the bride price, are considered her children. The, their biological fathers would not be able to claim them. And so she's living this reality where she's trying to carve out something that makes sense for herself. And then you have Christianity essentially intruding and saying, oh, we don't believe in this kind of family. And so she 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 flees. So it's the last story is also in some ways dystopian, but I hope there was a hint of hope at the end because Aisha's ending is not a sad one from her perspective from the reader's perspective maybe but not from her perspective i'm not sure if your dystopian world is even worse than the handmaid's tale oh no it's no it's, it's it's not intended to be <laughs> but it's a horrible world that you foresee so let's hope let's hope it does not come i mean we have more hope now than we did in, yeah, in no, 2018 and i don't think it will come <laughs> so uh final question what are you working on next so I'm working on um, my second uh, novel, which is going to be a more traditionally structured novel rather than um, interlocking stories. And again, so I should have mentioned that the first story um, in Jollof Rice and Other Revolutions is based on the story of my great aunt, uh, my grandmother's oh. older sister, who Whoa. was married to a wealthy woman who couldn't have a child and the wealthy woman did run off with their, with their son. Oh, 
but it the, the trajectory of that story is very different from um the fictionalized one and mm -hmm. so i i'm looking at family lore again and in 1897 which ends up being a pivotal time because that's when the uh Benin Empire, the Kingdom of Benin, was essentially um, destroyed uh, by the British. In 1897, my great-grandfather was found with a stockpile of guns. Oh. And somebody betrayed him. <laughs> and um, so he uh, you know, reported him to, to the British. And so he was taken away and, and banished. And uh, to this day... Um, we don't know where he died, where he was buried, but we do know that at that time, what used to happen, uh, colonial powers would take dissidents or people they thought were troublemakers to different uh, parts of the world that they controlled. So, for example, there's um, a, a king from the southern part of Nigeria called Jajagopobo, who was taken by the British to St. Vincent in the Caribbean and then Barbados. And there was like almost a riot in Barbados about this African king who was being treated badly. And then 30 something years later, I think they tried to take him back to Nigeria, but unfortunately he died on route. He, he died on the, on the, on the ship on the way back. Um, the Asantehene, the king uh, of the uh, Ashanti in Ghana was uh, t taken to a different part of the world, it was taken to the Seychelles and left for 30 years and then allowed to go back, you know. So th that was a tactic that was used. So not necessarily killing people, but um, just taking them away from their sphere of influence, putting them in a place where they didn't know the language, didn't have the uh, connections. And, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> they, they, they would have to sort of fend for themselves and realize, okay, here's who's in charge. And so the 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 book I'm writing is basically on this idea of banishment and it's loosely based on what I imagine the story of my great-grandfather to be. It sounds fascinating. Thank you so much, Lola. It's been a pleasure talking to you and I look forward to reading your next book too. Thank you very much for having me. Again, thank you for joining me today. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking to Omalola Ijeoma Ogunyemi about Jolof Rice and Other Revolutions, a novel in interlocking stories. Hope you all have a good novel to cuddle up with today and every day. Happy reading. <laughs>